Back in January 1973, an article under the headline, A Private Matter, appeared in The Economist. The story was about a ruling handed down by the Supreme Court of the United States. It decided that women had a constitutional right to an abortion. Roe v. Wade, we reported, relied on a right of privacy that is difficult to define. The outcome, however, was clear. But now, in 2022, abortion in America may no longer be a private matter. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, what if America reverts to abortion bans? At the start of May, a leaked draft opinion suggested that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade and return to America's states the right to legislate on abortion. If Roe falls, half of all states are expected to outlaw or severely limit terminations. Democrats have tried to put up a fight, but this week, a Senate bill that would have made abortion legal throughout the US ended in defeat amid heavy Republican opposition. What we are seeing around this country are extremist Republican leaders who are seeking to criminalize and punish women from making decisions about their own body. Vice President Kamala Harris said she also hoped the vote would propel Democrats to victory at November's midterm elections. Priority for all who care about this issue, priority should be to elect pro-choice leaders at the local, the state and the federal level. For the last 50 years, the legislation has drawn a dividing line across America's political landscape. And in recent years, the battle cries have got louder. In 2016, presidential nominee Donald Trump assured supporters he would appoint pro-life justices to the court. Since then, the fate of Roe has hung in the balance. So to understand today's strife, I wanted to return to the social and political scene of the 1970s. My guest is the legal historian Mary Ziegler. She's author of a number of books on America's abortion movement and a professor of law at Florida State University. Mary Ziegler, welcome to The Economist Asks. And thanks for having me. Now, how unprecedented is a leak of a draft opinion? And how close do you think that the draft opinion that we've been reading is to the final one? It's unprecedented to have a leak of an actual opinion. I mean, quite often we see leaks where they're sort of reporting about what the court is rumored to do or what this justice or that justice is thinking. But an actual full-blown opinion, to my knowledge, has never been leaked. It sends kind of an extraordinary message about where the court is in terms of collegiality and norms that may have been already decaying. In terms of how close is the draft to the final one, um, we know that Supreme Court opinions often go through sometimes as many as 20 drafts. Um, This is a first draft, so we would expect to see details change. I'm not expecting to see the final vote in the case change. I'm not expecting to see the court move away from the idea of reversing Roe. I'm not expecting the kind of broad contours of the court's justification for undoing abortion rights to change. So I think it's mostly a matter of potentially tone and details, but we've seen the direction we're going. What I'm interested in is what's the likelihood of Roe versus Wade being overturned in June, and how do you then interpret the way that the leak plays into that? 
I don't think the leak will ultimately make that much of a difference. If it does at all, I think there'll be somewhat more reluctance on the part of the justices to change their minds if they had been leaning in that direction because they would be perceived as political. But I think generally there was very little that was going to deter these justices from doing anything other than reversing Roe. We might come on to the consequences or implications of that a bit later. Let's spool back to the beginning of Roe versus Wade and start with Jane Roe, the plaintiff in that 1973 Supreme Court ruling that overturned most existing state laws banning abortion. Her real name was Norma McCorvey. She was a 22-year-old who had a very tough upbringing in Texas. She was pregnant for the third time. Can you explain Norma's attempt to get an abortion in the context? So Norma McCorvey, as you mentioned, had already had several children that she had put up for adoption. When she approached Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey, the people who had become her attorneys, she wanted to have an abortion, but she was already quite far along in her pregnancy. And Coffey and Weddington, by contrast, wanted to find the kind of ideal case to take to the federal courts and ultimately to the Supreme Court. And they thought that McCorvey's case might be the perfect one to do just that. McCorvey had been through lots of hurdles in trying to get an abortion. At one point, she had lied about the circumstances by which she had become pregnant and said she'd been sexually assaulted when she hadn't. But ultimately, when the case came to the courts, it was about the much more simple and kind of fundamental question about whether it was unconstitutional under U.S. law to criminalize abortion in the way that Texas had. And was there any access to legal abortion in Texas at that time? And how did that compare with other states? Texas allowed abortion only when a patient's life would be at risk, which in practice might not have really meant much because the criminal consequences of guessing wrong as to whether an abortion was necessary in that way could be pretty severe. And so doctors were often reluctant to invoke that exception. A majority of states at this time still had laws like Texas's. But there was a movement in the direction of expanding access to abortion. Something like 13 states allowed it under narrow circumstances. Four states allowed it under any circumstances. There were no regulations in those states. And there were a handful, I should say, that made a few other exceptions, like only, for example, in threats to life or rape or incest. Unravel the lawsuit for us, if you could, and what happened? What were the arguments that were really driving that? I I know that it argued flat out that Texas law was cruel, it was inadequate for poor women who couldn't afford to travel to other states to get legal abortions. But what was really driving it? If we look back with all that that time that has passed, what would we see as being at stake here as as well as as the obvious, the, the right to secure a termination? Part of it was just what the world on the ground looked like for people seeking abortions. So there were fewer deaths due to abortions, just as there were fewer deaths in pregnancy altogether by the 1970s than there had been before. But pregnancy and abortion were still dangerous, particularly illegal abortions. Morbidity and mortality for people of color was worse in the abortion context than it was for other people. We know that in states that allowed access to abortion, it was often complicated to jump through the hoops that were required. And that was something that was much easier to do when you were wealthy or connected. That isn't to say that people with more resources weren't affected too, they were, but it's also fair to say that probably the heaviest consequences were for those who had been people of color, people with the fewest resources. 
Let's remind ourselves of the composition of the Supreme Court. It took up the case in 1971. There wasn't a ruling till two years later. The court was made up of nine male justices, six of whom were Republican appointees. What was the basis of the ruling and how did the court rule? Well, the basis of the ruling was the constitutional right to privacy. The right to privacy was not found in the text of the Constitution, but the court had recognized it in a series of decisions starting in the 1920s and really accelerating in the 1960s. In 1965, in a case called Griswold versus Connecticut, the court had held that there was the right to privacy extended to married couples' ability to use birth control. In 1972, the year before Road was decided, the court explained that that right extended to single people as well as married people. Roe was decided on the basis that this right to privacy was broad enough to encompass the abortion decision and that the abortion decision was similar in salient ways to decisions that people made about marriage, about sexual intimacy, about procreation, about contraception, about parenting. Um, And so this was privacy more in the sense of autonomy than in the sense of secrecy. This was really where the court hung its hat. The court at the time laid out a trimester framework, which made it very difficult for states to regulate abortion in the first trimester and allowed bans on abortion only at viability, which was the point at which survival was possible outside of the womb. And the court rejected what were then the kind of major pro-life or anti-abortion arguments rejected the argument that a fetus or unborn child was a rights-holding person or that the state had a compelling interest in protecting life from the moment of fertilization. But the kind of legacy in part of Roe was this idea of a right to choose abortion until viability. And that began with Roe and lasted until this Supreme Court seems poised to change it. How was the ruling received by the public, particularly straight afterwards? I'm just interested in how much it impacted public opinion or simply reflected an existing view of abortion for or against. There was obviously already an anti-abortion movement that was active when Roe came down. And for people in that movement, Roe was just an absolutely unthinkably devastating decision. And so Roe had the effect of kind of nationalizing an existing anti-abortion movement. People in the public, I don't think, had that much of a sense that Roe was going to be as big of a deal as it turned out to be. It was not the issue in Supreme Court confirmations it would become later. It was not the issue in party politics it would become later. So, for example, when John Paul Stevens was nominated to the Supreme Court in 1975, no one asked him a single question about abortion, and he was confirmed unanimously. Both Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford in running for office in 1976 did their best not to answer questions about abortion and staked out positions on the issue that really didn't please anyone. So Ford, for example, said he would be in favor of letting the question return to the states, but then picked a pro-choice Republican as his vice president when he replaced Richard Nixon. Jimmy Carter, by contrast, said he supported Roe's right to choose but then also said he would support bans on Medicaid funding for abortion. So the, the idea that abortion was the sort of make or break political issue, make or break issue in Supreme Court confirmations, a sort of defining issue in American politics, might not have entirely made sense to people in the 70s. Some of those changes took place later. But it did become an issue around which various other political tendencies and alliances powerfully coalesced. Uh, Norma McCorvey became a born-again Christian herself. She spoke out against abortion. To what extent was the anti-abortion movement in the 70s becoming linked into that idea of being a core tenet of evangelic Christianity and that giving it a kind of extra salience and perhaps an extra force politically? 
The Southern Baptist Convention, which is a major force in, in white evangelical Protestantism, was not fully opposed to abortion until 1980. For much of the 60s and 70s, the Southern Baptist Convention had been against what it called abortion on demand, but largely in favor of abortion under other circumstances. Again, that wasn't something we can attribute to Roe, but when it happened, it was tremendously significant. By the 80s, you had the Southern Baptist Convention changing its position. You had white evangelical Protestants who had always voted, but not particularly for one party, becoming one of the key constituencies of the Republican Party then and really ever since. You have white evangelicals taking leading roles in the anti-abortion movement, which before then had really been somewhat ecumenical, but predominantly Catholic. And as white evangelicals became more influential, that set the stage for something that would also become significant later, which was the sort of regional shift of power in the anti-abortion movement, which in the 60s and 70s had been predominantly powerful in states like Pennsylvania or Minnesota or New York. And in the years that would follow would become particularly powerful in the South and sometimes in the Midwest, where you had large populations of white evangelical Protestants who would eventually affiliate with the Republican Party. Let's move to the present then. And the reason why Roe v. Wade has returned to the Supreme Court, last December the court heard oral arguments in Dobbs v. Jackson, Women's Health Organization, a Mississippi law that would ban abortion after 15 weeks. So would Roe v. Wade be being revisited if it weren't perhaps for this Dobbs case? There were a lot of coincidences that had to make that happen, right? So if Donald Trump hadn't been elected or if Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died later, the Supreme Court almost certainly wouldn't have taken this Dobbs case, which involved a 15-week ban on abortion, which is the point Mississippi said fetal pain was possible. And at the time that the court took the case, Mississippi seemed to be focused on getting the court to do something much narrower. For example, changing the rules that applied to abortion laws to make them a little bit more forgiving for states. And it was only after this series of sort of fortuitous coincidences that gave the court a six justice conservative supermajority and made the justice interested in revisiting Roe rather than doing something more incremental that Mississippi changed its approach. And during the hearings, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, the Trump appointee, talked about the need for the court to be scrupulously neutral on abortion. You felt that was wrong. I just wanted to push you a bit on why the use of the word neutral made you feel that that was taking things the wrong way. I think that there's a question of what neutrality means in this space. I don't know, in other words, if neutrality is possible or if Justice Kavanaugh is truly trying to achieve neutrality. This is a space that's been so extremely politicized in the context of abortion and the courts, that anything the court does here will be perceived as partisan. I was also struck in particular by the timing of this, that this is not a scenario where the courts had to intervene to take this case. There was no real split in the lower courts about how these matters were to be resolved. This was the court reaching out to reverse Roe v. Wade because it thought Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided at a time when Americans' views of the court are at an all-time low. And for Brett Kavanaugh to say that what the court is doing in deciding an issue that did not need to be decided at a time when the court is perceived as partisan is somehow a celebration of neutrality, I think is, is a little bit, if not disingenuous, then, then naive. And this will be perceived as partisan. 
One thing the Mississippi case definitely has done is caused the Supreme Court to revisit the fundamental question, which is at the heart of Roe v. Wade, whether the Constitution protects the right to abortion or can be interpreted as such. And the draft majority opinion in favour of striking down Roe v. Wade was written by Justice Alito. He claims there's no constitutional right at stake here and that therefore that the Roe case was egregiously wrong from the start. Now, it is a view held by a number of people, not all of them are arguing from extreme positions, that it was not particularly sound law. You could critique the way that it was written and that possibly it also raises questions about democracy in practice and who should decide on something like that. Do you think it needs to be conceded that it was a weak law? Roe was a bad, not well-reasoned decision. Most people agree with that. I just think it's important to distinguish that Supreme Court is usually not in the business of overruling every single unconvincing decision it's decided, especially in a scenario like this one. But do you find Alito's argument that there's no inherent constitutional right or interpretation of a right to abortion convincing? And if not, why not? Well, there are two parts of the draft that I found the least convincing. One is when Alito says, even if we concede there's no right to privacy on abortion, we don't think there's anything here involving discrimination on the basis of sex either. To answer that question, Alito says, we know that that argument doesn't work because we've rejected it in precedent. Now, that to me is a completely unconvincing argument because you have a Supreme Court dismantling 50 years of precedent and then in rejecting the strongest argument in support of abortion rights, one based on equality of the sexes, just relying on precedent, right? Um, and precedents that, by the way, have also been widely criticized. There's a precedent called Gedaldig versus Aiello, which says discriminating against someone because they're pregnant is okay because pregnancy isn't the same as sex. And Gedaldig has been about as widely derided as Roe v. Wade, and yet that doesn't seem to bother Justice Alito when he needs to rely on precedent. So I found that part of the opinion disturbing. And I found the part of the draft dealing with reliance interests disturbing because it's worth emphasizing that usually when the Supreme Court issues a ruling, and then that ruling is the law for a long time, the Supreme Court can be reluctant to disturb the law because it can disrupt people's lives and their expectations of how things are going to go. And one of the ways they deal with that is to say, look at reliance. Have people relied on the status quo in organizing their lives? And in answering that question, Justice Alito essentially says, well, no, because now adoption is much easier than it once was. That is an answer. One says absolutely nothing about pregnancy and how abortion rights affect pregnancy. And also, I think the idea that adoption has somehow changed fundamentally since the 70s or become a way to change the burdens of parenting fundamentally will also read strangely to a lot of people. I think if the court's answer essentially is, yes, this will affect real people in profound ways, but that's not important enough for us to change course, or that's not what we care about constitutionally. We care only about the fact that we think this was wrong. I might find that more convincing. But for the Supreme Court to say seriously that it can overrule Roe v. Wade and that people won't, in effect, see their lives fundamentally disrupted, I think beggars belief. The greatest difficulty for those who are on the pro-choice side of this argument here, and I'm, I'm now talking about the interpretation of the constitution and the law, not, not the reasons that people hold the views they have on abortion or their experiences, is this talk of returning authority to the people and their elected representatives. 
that is a resounding principle of any democracy. In many ways, we're often talking about how to bring power and the way that key decisions are made closer and back to people. And that fundamentally, the reason a lot of people oppose that is they think it will go the wrong way and Roe versus Wade will be overturned. So there is a bit of a distrust here of states' rights versus federal case as it happens, benefits one side of the argument. Do you think that is a sound enough principle on which to base opposition? It's true that the pro-choice side doesn't want this to be resolved democratically. It's also true that the pro-life side doesn't want this to be resolved democratically. Both sides view what they champion as a fundamental right that is above democratic politics, a matter of human rights that voters should not get to decide on. And so Ultimately, if the Supreme Court sticks to its guns and says this is going to be resolved democratically, I don't think that will make pro-choice or pro-life groups happy. I don't know the extent to which that will happen because we've already seen both pro-choice groups saying we're going to have federal legislation protecting abortion rights. We've seen pro-life groups say essentially we're going to have federal legislation banning abortion. And we've seen pro-life groups promising to go back to the U.S. Supreme Court to argue that abortion itself is unconstitutional. It's true that it's a weakness of the pro-choice argument. I think it's also ultimately a weakness of the pro-life argument because there are already briefs in this case, for example, saying this is not ultimately about democracy. This is about the rights of the unborn child. It may be that some voters would like abortion to stay with the states, but the social movements on either side of this issue do not. If the Supreme Court does rule against Roe v. Wade in June, what do you think will happen next? We're likely to see a variety of conflicts between states that will likely, ironically, end up back at the Supreme Court. We've seen some states signaling that they plan not just to criminalize abortion within their own borders, but potentially to try to punish people who are performing acts that are legal elsewhere. So, for example, the state of Missouri and the state of Texas have floated the idea of potentially trying to punish or allow lawsuits against doctors who are acting out of state. And we've seen blue states like Connecticut say, essentially, we're not going to allow our doctors to be sued if they perform abortions on people from other states. We're not going to extradite them to those states. So you could imagine there being kind of showdowns between blue and red states with different views on what abortion policy should look like. If that does occur, you would imagine those battles would ultimately land in the Supreme Court. We've also sort of seen a nationalizing of discourse around this in the sense that both Republicans and Democrats are pledging that they will try to have federal legislation on abortion. And you've seen anti-abortion groups essentially saying, we are not going to be content with allowing states to do their own thing. We want to have a nationwide ban either through the Supreme Court or through Congress. A lot of this is unpredictable, but the one thing that's pretty clear is that the conflict is going to rage on and in unpredictable ways. And if you look at the polling done by Politico after it published the leaked draft, It does appear about half of voters believe Roe v. Wade shouldn't be overturned. Justice Alito in the draft says we cannot allow decisions to be affected by extraneous influences, such as concern about the public's reaction to our work. So I I wondered about your personal take on that, because I argued it back and forth here with a couple of colleagues, and a lot of people are are sort of horrified by that and, and, and think that is regressive and doesn't take into account the amount of progress that's been made in the way that people think about abortion. But if I were to turn around and say, well, quite a sizable proportion of the American population would favour the death penalty to some degree and for certain crimes. I suppose you might be horrified to say, well, that court should obviously not be influenced by that kind of opinion or the mood of the country. Where do you come out? Well, obviously, the court's job, I think, in part, is to interpret the law. They're not supposed to be policymakers. 
At the same time, it's distressing to people to imagine that a court that is not democratically elected, that has lifetime appointment, that effectively, in real terms, no one has ever been impeached, has absolutely no accountability to anyone for anything. And so I think both of those things are true. On the one hand, the idea that you could have a Supreme Court completely unmoored from democracy and popular opinion. On the other hand, obviously, it's good that the court focus on principle. So in the past, I think there's always been an effort by the court to both stick to the law, but in practice, the court I think, is aware of likely popular reaction to its opinions. And when those reactions have been extreme enough in the past, there have been checks on the court, right? There have been laws taking jurisdiction away from the courts. There's been the threat of adding justices to the courts. And that's because as much as we want judges to be judges and not politicians, if judges act like politicians and then have no accountability for that, then we're left in a situation that's ultimately less democratic. So I think it's it's just navigating that balance for the court. I think Americans now clearly seem to be concerned that the court is, is acting in a partisan way without accountability, whether that's correct or not is unclear, but it's pretty obvious that that's what Americans are thinking. And I, I believe with some reason. How likely is it that overturning Roe would cause such an upset that it would be a catalyst for reform of the judiciary, of which there seems to be some balanced opinion, but perhaps more pro than con? Of course, we we haven't yet uh, interrogated in detail what sort of reforms that would entail, but is that the way it is pushing it? I think it's still unlikely that we'd see court reform in the short term, unless it begins to come home to people what this means. That may change because this Supreme Court seems likely not only to reverse Roe v. Wade, but to hold that affirmative action is unconstitutional to allow religious business owners to discriminate against same-sex couples, to drastically change church-state separation, to change the way the administrative law can work. All, All of this is happening in pretty short order, and maybe that changes people's views on court reform. We already know that adding justices to the courts at the moment is not popular. Term limits are popular, but would be harder to enact because there are constitutional limits on that strategy. If there's a conversation about court reform that's more urgent, it may not take place this year, but I I wouldn't be surprised if it does take place down the road. What does a post-row United States look like from your point of view? I think quite similar in the sense that the conflict is going to be polarized. And I think the idea that letting the states decide this will lead to some sort of peaceful resolution where states leave each other alone ignores both the history of the abortion conflict and ignores the deeply held views that people who are pro-life or pro-choice have, which is to say, these are not people who want this to be decided by voters. They see this as a fundamental human right. A legislator in Missouri is not okay with someone driving to Illinois and having an abortion. And someone in California is not okay with the idea that someone in Alabama can't have an abortion if they want to. So states are, I think, quite likely to be trying to interfere with what other states are doing. And that's just going to multiply the arenas of conflict in which this battle is fought. So many years after Roe v. Wade and completely different context and still the same argument. Mary Ziegler, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks for having me. And do let us know what you think, what has led to the possible demise of Roe, and what's at stake more broadly if it does fall. Write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at The Economist. For more on this story, do listen to the latest episode of our sister podcast, Checks and Balance. The team investigates how Roe v. Wade will affect America's midterms. You'll find that show wherever you get your podcasts. 
And this week, The Economist looks at what might come after abortion. Could the Supreme Court overturn Plyla v. Doe, a 40-year-old precedent protecting the right of undocumented children to receive a public education? You can read that article on our website. And to enjoy full access to all of our journalism, we'd love it if you became a subscriber. Sign up at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producers were Alicia Burrell and Julia Johnson. The booking producer was Melanie Starling Condon and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs> 